So, um, if you don't if you don't know, we've been doing a theme um, this year called Deeper, and I know uh, Pastor Charles was here the other day, talking a little bit about what God had put him what on his on his heart for us as a church. So, for us across both campuses, we want our theme this year to be about going deeper with God. And he pulled out a verse from Colossians, where Paul actually says, "Our, our roots should go deep." And be built on Christ, um, which would indicate that we can stay shallow as Christians if we're not intentionally going deeper and building our lives on Jesus. And so I'm going to teach into that theme this morning, and uh, there we'll we'll do some more stuff around it during the year as well. Um, so here's let me. I'm going to start with something a little bit different. Uh, go to the next slide for me, because I'm going to talk about. Um, the first two steps in going deeper with God. I, I sort of didn't know what to what to call it because um, when I was when I was preparing it, I thought to myself, these two things I feel like I should share around are actually something we sh- all should do every single day. So I was going to call it, you know, the everyday steps. Um, it's something we just can't do one-off. It's not. I'm not going to give you some sort of great spiritual secret that no one's ever uncovered before. Um, by the way, I don't think that's how the Lord works. The Lord has revealed fully what he wants to tell us. And uh, we have the full revelation of Christ. It's living it out. But these two things I want to cover today actually come from something that we, we should do all of the time. And if we just... They're actually really simple. They're not complex. But if we live this way... So not, not on a Sunday, but just during the week in our everyday living, our relationship with God would go deeper automatically and very quickly. And so, you know, I'm pretty passionate about these two things. Now, here's how this talk came about. It actually started three years ago. I was, uh, Sue and I were in Israel on a trip, uh, doing a Holy Land trip. Um, and uh, we're, about to, we're about to lead one ourselves um, in another two and a half months' time. But we're at the Western Wall. So, you know, the Wailing Wall, which is what you see on the news. It's part of the sort of outer wall that was closest to the temple, which was destroyed in around 70 AD. And so Orthodox Jewish people go to that Wailing Wall to actually pray. And they, they pray at the, the wall, um, stand right up close to it. Um, they write their little prayers on bits of paper and stick them in the cracks within the wall. We were there on a Friday afternoon. We got there about a four o'clock. We did that intentionally because we wanted to be at the Wailing Wall when Sabbath officially starts, which is at 6 p.m. on a Friday. So Sabbath goes from 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Saturday because it, that area of the Western Wall becomes... Um, Linda, you might just want to stay for this. Just one second. I'm going to show a short video. That area of the Western... Linda's coming to Israel with this. The area of the Western Wall gets packed with Orthodox Jews um, worshipping God at the start of Sabbath. And they've sort of divided it by curtain. So there's a male section where I was and Sue and the other girls on our tour went to the female part of of the Wailing Wall and you could walk in and out any time. But I noticed a rabbi strapping some stuff to a guy um, or quite a few people in the end there was a queue of people getting the strapping done before they went to the wall to pray and so I pulled out my phone and I videoed it so I'm going to show you this video have a look at this this rabbi strapping an orthodox Jew 
left the the wall at the background is actually the the whaling wall. It's about 4:30 in the afternoon. You can't really see it in detail, but there's a little box. Isn't there a little box that's on the top now of the man's head? There's a little black box there, and it gets strapped to his head. And then the rabbi has to strap it around seven times. Now, the, that man is now praying a blessing on himself. He has to actually pray a blessing on himself. So you can, you can yeah, start it again. You can, uh, you can stop it now. So go to, the next, go to the next slide for me, Nathan. So I had no idea what that was. When I first saw that, I thought, this is fascinating. What is that? Well, it's called, I, I can't really pronounce it, but it's like Telfilin. And inside that little black box, there, there's a scroll, a handwritten scroll. And there are four verses of scripture. And one of them we're going to look at today, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 4. Um, because what, what, they, what they did is they took some of the, um, their holy scriptures are obviously the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, they call them the scriptures. There are some parts of the Old Testament where they, God says, put my words on your forehead, tie them around your arm, put them on your doorposts and your gates. And so they do that literally. So let me tell you a little bit. I know if you have to go, Linda, I just want you to see the video. You'll see that when you're there in a couple of months. So this, this object can only be made by a special rabbi. So just not any Jewish person can make their own. They actually come with an authenticity certificate because they are a highly religious article for the Orthodox Jews, the enormous religious significance. They've got to be perfect in every way or they get destroyed because they're like a holy object. Um, the arm, as you saw the man getting it strapped on his arm, that is done first and they do it on the weaker arm. So I imagine if I, like I'm right-handed, so it would be my left arm. It's put on the weaker arm um, and it's strapped around the arm seven times. When the man covered his eyes and was praying, this is what he prayed. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to put on the telflin. So that's what he was praying when you saw him close his eyes for a second. The head one is loosely fastened. And for, if, for us guys, they put it about a centimetre from your normal hairline. So if you go bald... It doesn't creep back. It always sits here, no matter what happens. And those four handwritten texts, now I haven't got a, you can, if you, if you Google it, you'll see pictures of the little scroll that they put inside that black box. But they come from Exodus 13 in two different places, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11. We're going to look at the Deuteronomy 6 passage in just a moment. At some point in history, when they're not really sure, even um, Jewish rabbis are not really sure, but at some point in history became very important, particularly for the men, to say Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is called the Shema. So, hear, O Israel, that the Lord your one is um, God. Actually, go to the next, next slide for me, Nathan. I've got it on there. And, of course, you'll know this verse. So, hear, O Israel, that the Lord... Our God is one. Love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You know that verse, right? Jesus repeats the teaching. 
Jesus prayed this prayer. So it's, it's, a very, it's almost like a confession of faith for Jewish believers. And then, of course, you can read there, it talks about these commandments today should be on your heart. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. So that's what we saw. And bind them around your foreheads. That's what we saw on the video. And write them on your door frame of your houses and on your gates. So at some point in history, it became very important for them to say this prayer as often as they can. So actually for thousands of years, thousands of years, we're not really sure how many, at least 2,000, probably longer, Orthodox Jews pray this prayer every morning and every evening, twice a day. But people who are sort of ultra-devoted, they want to pray it at least seven times per day as Orthodox Jews. And in fact, people who are more religiously devoted to Yahweh will pray it as often as they can. It's like you're more spiritual the more often you can pray it. It mean, it's, so, it's so important to them that before your child could speak, Nathan and Chanel, you teach them this prayer. They want, so Orthodox Jews prefer that their children's first words come from the Shema, from this verse. It's called the Shema. When a person is dying as an Orthodox Jew, they ask that person to keep praying this prayer so the last words that they say on earth is the Shema. In his history, when um, Orthodox Jews were being martyred for whatever reason, other Jews would try and surround them and they would scream this prayer out as loud as they could as that person is being put to death. In synagogues, it's used to open their services, this prayer. So today, we're going to have a look at Deuteronomy 6. I'm just going to focus on the first two verses, which is really, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. I'm just going to sort of park there. And you can have a look. If you've got a Bible there, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and have a look at the context. Let me, let me set some of the scene for um, why this passage is given by God to Israel and when it was. Now, Deut- Deuteronomy is, of course, the last book that the bulk of it was probably recorded by Moses. In fact, the word Deuteronomy means a second telling. That's literally what the word means, where the book gets its name from. So when the children of Israel um, come out of Egypt and the Lord delivers them uh, from Pharaoh, and of course they cross the Red Sea, um, they, the Miriam breaks into song, they go to Mount Sinai and they're given the ten, or well, was actually more than ten, Um, We usually say Ten Commandments, but the Lord gives them a covenant. This is the moment they become God's covenant people at Mount Sinai. Now, this verse that we're reading this morning is approximately 40 years later. And what Moses is doing, Moses knows that he's about to die and they are on the edge of entering into the promised land that God says that he would give to them. So they're about to actually go in. We know the story under Joshua and actually take the promised land. So Moses retells them the covenant, and that's why it's called Deuteronomy, the second telling. It's not new. He's just revisiting it. But this is the way that he describes what God wants them to do, and that is that God wants them to love him. 
So you think of uh, the 40 years in the wilderness and all the mistakes that the Israelites made and, and the relational stuff with God didn't always work out because they were, well, they were treating God as ritualistic or they wanted to go back to Egypt where they were more secure in terms of their food and their provisions. They're not wandering. And so before Moses lets them go into the promised land and Moses knows that he will not see the promised land, he will die, he reminds them the key part of the covenant which is quite relational. It's not ritualistic. It's not systematic. It's about how we love God. So the first word of this verse here in English is the word in Hebrew, Shema. Now, the way we'd probably pronounce it if we were Hebrews, we'd have to go, everyone do that. Come on, I'm going to, Shema. Come on. Spit on the person's back, the back of the head in front of you. Shema. So when they read that, that's, that's why it's called the Shema. This prayer is called the Shema because the word here in Hebrew is Shema. That's literally the word. Very common word actually in the Bible. So go to the next slide for me, Nathan. The Shema, when we talk about what's the first step in going deeper with God, it is actually to listen or to hear God and to live out what he says. That's the first thing that we should, if you want a deeper relationship with God, it's not mechanical. It's not trying to get you to do certain things that are more spiritual. It's so simple and yet sometimes we don't do it. We're not really listening to God and we're not doing what God has asked us to do. We try and Add more stuff. So like if I pray longer or if I, you know, go to this religious seminar or if I, if I listen to this preacher, I'll go deeper with God. But you don't, what you need is not other external things that are imposed on our time and our efforts, but actually just to hear what God's asked us to do and live that way. So let me explain a couple of things about the Hebrew word Shema or hear. So because it's actually quite a packed word in meaning. Now, obviously, it means to hear, as in the auditory process of sound waves hitting your ear and your brain interpreting the phrase that someone else is saying. So, the very fact that you are listening to me, you shema me right now, right? There are sound waves hitting your ear and you are interpreting those sound waves, but... The word Shema has a much more, it goes sort of deeper and deeper. The second meaning of just the word Shema, here, is actually the word to respond. So you know when you get upset with your children because they're not doing what you want them to do? Nathan and Chanel, you can say to, to Scout, Shema. And in fact, if you want to give it emphasis, what Hebrews do is they repeat it. Shema, Shema. That means, hey, pay attention. So it doesn't just mean hearing, because you can hear but not respond, right? We all do that occasionally, right? Not just to God, but to each other. You can get the sound waves in here. Your ear's working fine, but there's no response. And so in actual fact, when, when the, even in the Hebrew Scriptures, you get Shema, Shema next to each other, hear, hear, it actually means pay attention, so there's, I've given you three meanings already. It means to hear, to respond, 
and it means to focus or pay attention. If you repeat the word, shema, shema, it means, hey, listen to what I'm saying. Pay attention to me. Focus on what I'm telling you. They repeat it to give it more deeper meaning. So here's the thing. When God says to us as his people, hear, listen, shema, he wants us not just to comprehend what he's saying, he wants us to actually live it out. Because the fourth sort of deeper meaning, do you know in, in, in the ancient Hebrew language, there is no word for obey. Do you know the word for obey, when you read that in the Old Testament in English, it's the word shema. Because in the Hebrew language, if you listen to someone, you do what they say. Shema. There's no separate word to obey someone who's more important than you or has authority over you. It's simply the same word here. It's like it's like a coin. To it's the different other side of the same coin. If you're gonna if you hear them, it means you're gonna do it. So that's why you, you'll, some of you'll know this. You might make the connection here. That's why throughout the Old and New Testament. We have this phrase used every now and then by the authors, by the prophets, by Jesus and by Paul. They shema, but they don't do. They hear me, but they're not doing it. They have ears to hear. Know that phrase? You ever read that? They have ears so they can shema, but they're not doing it. So, of course, the prophets use that. They have ears, but they cannot shema. They don't obey. They don't follow. They don't live it. They're not doing it. God's not just communicating a bunch of words for us to go, okay, yes, I understand. God's communicating to us the way that we should actually live with him and then we follow it. I mean, if you're taking notes, um, Jesus, of course, says they have ears but don't hear. Paul uses it in Romans in Romans 8.11, when he's explaining that the Jews heard the gospel but rejected it. So they have ears, but they didn't hear it. Um, Paul also uses it in Acts 28 verse 27, when he's also describing there how some people fail, once they've heard the gospel, to actually live for Christ. So here's the thing. You can hear just fine. You know, I think everyone in this room can hear very well in terms of your auditory process, but are we living it? So every time you read the word here in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, it's got to do not just with what you understand from God's word, but how you're living. You can't cut them into two and separate them out. Um, The word says uh, the Lord our God is one. Some people use that as a Trinitarian sort of thing, but you can't really do that because the reason why God speaks, or Moses repeats what God spoke to the Israelites, is they're about to enter into the promised land, which has Canaanites and a whole stack of other different tribal groups worshipping myriads of gods, not just one. So those other cultures at that time didn't have one single God. They had different gods for different aspects of life. So if you wanted prosperity, 
you had to bring appeasement to this God. If you wanted wealth, there was another God you had to appease to bring wealth. If you wanted your crops to actually uh, grow and produce um, a harvest, you would appease this third God. They They had collections of gods like some cultures still do today. And so the reason that one is there, that literally means first, alone, no other. So the charge that God is giving the children of Israel at this point as they're about to enter into the promised land and take on these other cultures who are worshipping a variety of gods, God's reminding them that I'm it. There is no other God. One. And it's a, you know, no, don't get attracted to the, the multiplicity or the options of worshipping a variety of gods. Now we know historically, of course, at different points they did. Because they shema, but they didn't shema. They heard him, but they didn't do it. Now let me go to this, the second part of this verse. So go to the, the, the last slide for me, Nathan. So the first thing is you have to listen and live what God says. The second thing is really in what intrigued me is, um, you know, love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. I'm going to give you a new theological word, muchness. I made it up. Um, it's probably the most accurate I could get, and uh, I'll take credit for it. It's a new English word, muchness. But it encapsulates the meaning of this second part of the, the verse. But, you know, here's the problem. You know, I've been, I've been in church life since the 80s, and one of the issues is, historically at least, we tend to split these three things into three separate categories. So I've heard talks and sermons and presentations on you know what your heart is what your soul is it's different and what your strength is is different from your heart and soul and that can actually be traced back to the ancient Greeks the Greeks in their philosophical um, culture that is great culture focused on philosophy and the way they would try to teach elements of what a human being entails what makes you human is they started separating out you know this form of gnosticism of you know where your heart does this your mind does that your strength is this and your soul is that and so that's crept into our western thinking because really the western culture is based on the ancient greek culture you know so like athletic ability good looks all that comes from the greek ancient greek culture and so that's we're based on that And we hear talks on what your soul is. So we even say, God wants to save your soul. I say, no, he doesn't. He wants to save all of you. You can't. So here's the problem. You can't separate them. And in fact, when a Jewish person reads this verse or prays the Shema and they say, "Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, they think of the completeness of everything they are, their muchness. They're not separating it out. We make the mistake in the Western culture with our modern thinking. You know, I've heard great talks of how to describe every three or or sometimes there's four. They put the spirit in there as well, the spirit of a person. I've heard incredible long talks on it. But it's wrong. That's not the point. It's everything that we are. God wants us to love him. Our totality, our muchness, our veriness. All of us. So, in fact, when Nathan was doing the offering before, he was stealing my sermon, not knowing what I was preaching on. Because he said, 
you have to love God with everything you've got. That's, that's literally what that means. That second part of this prayer that Orthodox Jews still pray morning and night, God's not telling them, say, love me this way, one third this way, one third that way, the other third this way. He's not telling them that, but that's when we read it, we've been sort of brainwashed or coded to see it that way. But here's what the Jews understood when this was originally written. Heart. When you study the Jewish understanding of heart, you know it's so different from our understanding. You know, so for us, we had Valentine's Day this, I was going to say this month, it's the first of the month, right? Last two weeks ago we had Valentine's Day. And so you have heart symbols in shops, you do all, you know, you have all that sort of romantic stuff. Heart as if it's the place of feelings. But in actual fact, that's not what Jews understood or how they use that word. Your heart is your seat of reasoning, your ability to think. It's where you process all the information that comes through all your other senses to create an understanding. It's logic. So really, if you want to break this down into into thirds, God's saying, I want you to think about how you're going to love me. So it's 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 not just emotion. It's not whether we feel like it or not feel like it. It's much deeper than that. It's this whole idea of everything that we are, In fact, it's the most common organ of the body mentioned in the Old Testament because it's very important to God that we have to think about how we love and worship him. We don't do it ritualistically or mechanically or we're not doing it. If if, if you do it, if if you love God in a way that you just, for instance, come to church or you pray because you have to, there's no relationship there. That's not a relationship of love. I mean, the first word here is to love the Lord your God. Not follow a bunch of systematic rules enforced by your culture, by church tradition. It's a love relationship. So you've got to think about that. The word soul in Hebrew is not your spirit or personality, which is what the Greeks used to teach, which now gets taught in some Christian movements. Your soul actually means all of you. The Israelites never separated your soul from your body in their thinking, in their teaching, or in the use of those words. In fact, the same Hebrew word in the Old Testament is normally translated into English as being, your being, your total being. The Hebrew word strength is your muchness. So that's my new theological word for the day. The idea is your veryness, one theologian I read was talking about. He had the same trouble as me, trying to find an English word that encapsulates all of you. So it's not it's not got nothing to do with the, the physical power that you've got, you know, like worship God so you don't fall asleep or it, that's that's the wrong thinking here. We're not separating them. We're actually putting them all together. And actually, Nathan, when you mentioned wealth out of the book of Revelation. Here's something very interesting around translation. This Hebrew word strength in Aramaic is translated as wealth. This same Hebrew word for strength in Greek is translated as power. So why why are the different sort of connotations around the translation of one single Hebrew word in different languages? Because... The receptor language, so for us, say English, 
we're trying to, the translators are trying to find a word that encapsulates the point of that single word, but that single word is with three other verbs or two other verbs. And the whole thing is, it's our totality. So when, when the Hebrews, even today, the Israelites, pray this prayer morning and night, they're not thinking of three different aspects of their being. They're thinking, everything that I have, all that I am, everything at my disposal, I have to worship God with. So things like your time, uh, your abilities, uh, your money, your family, your work. Everything that's at your disposal, everything that's in your realm of life, God is actually saying originally here, that's how we love him. We take everything that we have, all that we are, all that, all all resource, all possibility, all potential, and we're in a loving relationship expressing it that way. We don't compartmentalise our relationship with God to a Sunday morning in a small box and then get on with the rest of the week because that's ritualistic. We're supposed to be in a relationship with a loving God who loved us first. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy, um, plus in the New Testament, you have this repetitious theme. The reason we love him is because he first loved us. And in, in the whole book of Deuteronomy, he keeps telling the Israelites, reminding them, the only reason they've got a covenant with him is because he first loved them more than all the other peoples on the earth. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. He's just expressing his love to them by giving them a covenant relationship that's based on love. Not ritual, not rules, not legalism, but the way we actually engage. If you want to go deeper with God in your relationship, it's not separating how you can interact or express worship to God. It's actually understanding that everything that you are and everything that you have is included in how we connect and love our God. Because that's what he did for us. He gave us his own one and only son. So if God calls us to Shema, to listen and obey, he's calling us to love him with everything we've got. And that's relational. So I'm going to finish up in a minute. I'll tell you a funny story um, which happened to, to Sue and I just the other week. So Valentine's Day, right? Now, despite popular opinion, I'm quite romantic in our relationship. Is that right? Is that so? That's true. So I was so well prepared for Valentine's Day, Day this year. It was unbelievable. I'd written the card the week before. I'd sourced a gift two weeks before. I had it all hidden in the house ready to give her. I think it was a Friday morning, Valentine's Day this year. And so, you know, I was, I was ready to go. I didn't know this. At the time, she was ready to go. She'd written this card for me as well. And so, you know, when you love someone, it comes out of you, right? You, you, don't, you don't ritualize it or you don't... Um, you know, it's not mechanical. It's not lifeless. Because I think that's what happens with some Christians. You know, they just get into this form of tradition. Uh, now, you know, we think other churches have tradition. We have our own traditions. But they suck the life out of a loving relationship. When you're in love with someone, it comes out of you all the time. And everything I've got is expressed in my love for my wife. That's, that's how it works. That's what it's supposed to be. That's the sort of thing I've got with God. Anyway, I made a faux pas Friday, Valentine's Day. You know, got up in the morning. I had a big day at work. I was so sort of focused about what I had to do. Took off early. 
didn't even say happy Valentine's Day, forgot that I, it was Valentine's Day, forgot that I had the card and the gift. So I'm driving to work and I go, hang on, it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> so as soon as I could, I ring her and she said the same thing. She forgot to say it to me as well. But that's sometimes how we like with God, right? We, we, we're so distracted or we think God wants all these rituals out of us or, you know, we've got to appease him somehow. No, 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 no. That verse there, the Shema, hear that he's one and love me with everything you've muchness, with all your muchness. Love me with everything you've got. It's got to be natural. It's got to be organic. Now, we need structures. Like we need to come to church on a Sunday. You know, we need to worship in song. We, we have to do those things. But if those things become the goal, then you kill the relationship that's actually underneath all that or covering all that. And so if you want to go deeper with God, certainly that's my goal. We have to understand that we're, we're, this year we're going to love God with all of who we are. Every aspect belongs to him. We're going to worship him with all that we've got. That's what the word Shema means. Wholehearted, life-encompassing relation, a passionate relationship with a God that has delivered us, lives in us by the power of his spirit. We're not into legalism structures for the sake of it. We don't worship those things. We don't put those things above a loving relationship like you wouldn't do with someone that you're in love with in the human sense. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are so grateful that you sent your one and only son. Jesus, you came to this earth. And you're the one that put us back into relationship with God. We weren't aware of it. We, we were lost. We didn't even really probably know that we needed you. And Father, my prayer is as we explore going deeper with you, my genuine prayer from my heart is that we don't get stuck in systematic ways of doing Christian activities. And we keep right at the centre over everything else we do, even our time together now as we eat with this barbecue, that it's we're worshipping you out of our love for you, out of all that we have and the way we interact with each other and what we do to read the Word or to to talk to you in prayer or to give you um, our funds in offering. Lord, whatever we're doing, whether we're serving you or praying for somebody, whether we're encouraging someone else, whether we're witnessing, whatever we do, our totality of who we are and what's at our disposal, we worship you with all of that. Lord, I pray that our relationship with you would be one of love this year, not mechanical, not lifeless, but organic and alive, a devotion that's passionate, celebrating the goodness of your love towards us. Father, convict us if we become too legalistic, too cynical or too too mechanical. Remind us, Lord, of this, this prayer that we are to love you completely, every aspect of our being. And Father, I just want to finish by asking you, Lord, all those who desire to express the spiritual gifts that your Holy Spirit flows through them. Lord, this week, Lord, let them be able to come back with a testimony of how you've used them for the benefit of somebody else. And I 
pray this in Jesus' name.